Okay, Denise Coleman. Uh, we are calling the meeting to order. And will the secretary take the roll, please? President Bronkin. I'm here. Mr. Bronkin is not here yet. He's in Great. And the first thing on the agenda is general. Oh no, we do the resolution. But we've done this like five times now. This is a resolution we're required to pass that uh, about teleconferencing meetings. And it basically says that given that COVID is a crisis, we um, can uh, meet, repeat, we, we will meet in person, but we can meet remotely, or people can come remotely if it's a COVID-related reason, and that our subcommittees can meet remotely. So can I have a motion to approve that resolution? So move. You've got the public comment, son. <laughs> Does anybody have a comment on this important resolution? <laughs> Seeing no comment, could the secretary take the roll? President Bronson. I approve. Mr. Lake. Yes. Mr. Moses. Yes. Mr. Spingola. Yes. Motion approved. Okay, great. So now I'm going to call for a public comment of things that are not on the agenda. And it's really important that we reserve that for things that aren't on the agenda. So when you have something to say about what is on the agenda, you wait for that to happen. Is there any comment by anybody who is listening remotely or anybody who is here? None remotely. None remotely. There's a voice coming out. Yeah, Michael, he just said none remotely. Oh, no. Uh, okay. Hearing no public comment, we will go on to the next issue, which is to review the minutes of the last meeting, which were very comprehensive, I must say. And I will say that uh, Pauline and I, our secretary and I, have discussed this, and we're going to aim for minutes that are somewhere between uh, a basic recording of the of the meeting and something that is so sketchy that people don't know what happened. So the, the next immediate minutes, we will try that. Meanwhile, we have very comprehensive minutes. Does anybody want to make a motion to approve the minutes? I move. Second. 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 Okay, it's been moved and seconded to approve the minutes. Does anybody have any public comment?
I'm sorry, excuse me. It seems like the microphone is muted on the phone. Yes, I noticed that too, Michael. So Chi is coming and he's going to fix that really quick. Thank you. Also, Pauline, could you please make me host? Yes, right now. Thank you. Michael, can you hear me if I unmute myself? Yes. Okay, thanks. I'll make sure not to do that. <laughs> Michael, it's Derek. Can you uh, hear me speak also? It's Derek. <laughs> Can you, can you, can you, so you, you can hear me, but you'll hear the echo. Yeah, I could hear you. Can with you echo. unmute Huckleberry? We ready to go? Okay. We, we are moving on to the guts of this meeting now. Item number five where we are going to talk about diversion, which I think is probably the most important thing for what? What happened? We need to do item four again. Oh. Uh, does somebody want to make a motion to uh, approve the minutes? I move. Okay. Public Any public comment? comment? <laughs> Um, shall we take a vote? President Bronson? Yes. Great. So now we really are going to move on to item four, which I am really excited about because I think it's probably the most important thing for this commission to be talking about and the most the core element of our efforts to reform our juvenile justice system. So we are going to talk about diversion. And we're going to start with an overview by the chief. Then we're going to start with a CARC overview about the role that CARC plays in diversion. Then we're going to hear some data through Maria Selena. Selena. Um, and then we're going to have a presentation from DDAP. Um, 
and I think Dinky might be on the line to do that. And from the public defender, we have Emily Goldfarb here. And we will round out the presentation with a presentation from the Juvenile Justice Providers Association from Dawn Stuckel. So this is very exciting, and I'm going to turn this over to the chief, and we're going to try to do this in 50 minutes. But if we can't, we can't. No, no promises here. All right. Um, Michael, can you put my my diversion PowerPoint up on the screen? Yes. Just give me no, a moment. I think I'm actually good. Num yes, number one that Maria sent you. Sorry about the delay. Okay. All right. I'm just checking with our studio audience, our non-studio audience, to see if they can hear me. Yes. Okay. Uh, is that the one? Okay. All right. Whenever you're ready. Is it displaying properly? Uh, no, we don't see it yet. Oh, sorry. Hmm. Let's see. Why is it displaying? Huh. You can't show it from here. Let me try. Is it displaying now? No. Hmm. Oh, wait. I think you're getting there. There we go. You're good. Takes a while. Yeah, okay. you're good. Okay. okay. Thanks. Um, so I, uh, so good evening, everybody. Great to see you all. I'm going to do a super quick introduction to the topic of diversion um, because it's a word that we use a lot and often to mean a lot of different things. Um, it's one of the goals that this commission has actually um, adopted as a preliminary goal to make sure that there's diversion all along the different points of the system. And so obviously that's why we're also here at CARC, one of the reasons why we're here at CARC tonight. Um, so just a few slides about kind of diversion as a whole before we dig in specifically to CARC. Can you move to the next slide, please, Michael? Thank you. So there's a lot of different diversions, uh, diversion definitions out there, but I like uh, this language. It was created by um, some folks who work at the Center for Court Innovation, and it kind of sums up what I think is a good way to describe diversion as from where we sit in the justice system, which is that diversion is a state action, often discretionary, to offer an alternative obligation to the most restrictive legislative outcome. So we operate under laws and processes, and there are really important decision points along the way where deciders have the ability to do the thing that's set out in the law or to do something different. And so to me, this kind of gets at the, the core of what diversion means for us across our juvenile system. Um, and I want to also acknowledge something that uh, President Brocken and I have been talking about a lot and she's been acknowledging recently also, which I appreciate in our conversations, which is that people often think about diversion as an off-ramp away from something, but just as important is what you're diverting 
a young person or an adult too. <laughs> so it's both an on-ramp, but it's also an on-ramp to opportunity, to different ways of supporting someone, different ways of resolving a situation, different ways of supervision. Um, and so I just want to always bring us back to that because so often the graphic kind of that the drawing about diversion is just a set of like arrows pointing off of something. And a lot of our work here is about what are the things, right? What's the thing? Um, so uh, let's go to the next slide. So just continuing to hammer on this point, right? So diversion opportunities exist across the continuum. Um, they uh, start with the first time police engage with a young person and they go all the way through a way a case is handled. Um, and it's important to identify all of those so that we are mindful about then what diversion looks like at that place. So when police first engage with a young person, they can arrest them, but they can also divert them. They can do something different in that moment, right, other than starting their kind of official entry point into the justice system. The law allows for this. Didn't actually allow for it when CARC was created a long time ago, but it allows for it now and leads to some important conversations in San Francisco. Um, probation engagement. So when probation gets, enters the scene, when the police have decided to arrest a young person, the first decision point that probation has when we get that phone call is whether we're telling the police to bring a young person to the hall to get booked or to do something different, right? What, what is the other alternative? And then the second decision that probation makes when we go through the process, the kind of continuum, is whether to present a case to the district attorney's office or not. In a lot of situations, we don't have that discretion. For a lot of kinds of charges, for kids of certain ages, the law requires us to bring the case to the DA, but not always. And in those moments, but not always is, what are the alternatives that we have even when an arrest has taken place? And then the DA obviously has an important role to decision to make. So when probation brings a case to the district attorney's office for a charging decision, they can charge and start that court process, or they can also do something different. In that moment, they actually have tremendous discretion and ability, right, for any kind of case that's brought to them. And then the court. Court has a whole lot of off-ramp slash on-ramp. They can decide at the detention hearing whether to keep the young person in custody or find an alternate path for them. They can decide whether to resolve the case by a sustained petition against a young person or something different along the way. Um, and they decide what happens at disposition. Do we go to the you know, highest level response of our juvenile system, which is a secure commitment for a young person, or a whole bunch of other things below that? So really along the way, every one of those decision points is an opportunity and a place that we should be talking about. Next slide. So just to bring these to where we are right now and what we'll hear about tonight, so obviously CARC fits in both at that probation engagement place when we get the call, but also increasingly in conversations about police engagement, about this idea that police may never even have to arrest, but instead could divert in the moment. And then we're not going to hear from the DA's office tonight. They will be coming next month to talk about their programs, but we have already talked about Make It Right here. You've heard about that program. There's also UCAP which is the Unaccompanied Children's Assistance Program that the DA's office started. Those are concrete examples of different decisions they get to make at that moment when we bring them a petition. Those are important, those are actual like diversion models at the DA's office. And then again, with court engagement at that initial detention hearing, home detention is an option. Electronic monitoring, 
which while very imperfect, as we all talked about last month, is an option, right, is a diversion. Um, and DDAP, which we'll hear from tonight, those are all places where it comes into place and then all along the system. So you see all of those examples along the continuum. We also have included, for people's further reading pleasure, the next slide, Michael, <laughs> which is, so I gotta hand it to Maria. Take time to look at this at your leisure, but it really is a diagram showing at each of those, at each of those first three decision points, the different kinds of options in the system to help people who uh, appreciate kind of a visual view of how things work. And then final slide for me. It's just some considerations as we think about diversion. So if we really dig in and we're really specific about the fact that all along the way there are different decisions to be made, different ways to divert, then we need to kind of be clear about asking ourselves a few things. At each stage, when we're talking about diversion, what are the outcomes that we desire at that stage? It's not always the same. Diversion is not always just let's divert to reduce recidivism, right? So. At the beginning stage, instead of even arresting a young person, diversion keeps them out of the system entirely, offers them services and community, right? And really keeps them from having these touch points that we know can actually increase recidivism. Um, at the moment uh, of uh, prosecution, right? It's a question about whether we want to resolve the case for everybody involved in a totally different way or whether we want them to go through a court system. When somebody is released on home detention or through DDAP, as they go through adjudication, the goal of that is really to make sure that they do okay at home through adjudication, right? Not necessarily the long-term plan, but like that is the diversion at that point. So I say that to say that as we make sure we have things along the way, we always need to be asking ourselves, at this stage, what is the model? What is diversion supposed to achieve here? And then which models are assigned and attuned to each stage? Um, and there's a lot more weeds we can go into, we won't. But, you know, there are other questions along the way, too, at each stage for different kinds of diversion. When is there information shared between government and community, and when isn't there? That will look different depending on a model. So a lot of things to think about, but I'm going to just really beat our dead horse tonight. It's to make the point that there's many, many opportunities for diversion along the way. Um, decision points are where those opportunities lie, and we always want to make sure that we're not just not doing something for somebody, but that we are doing something for somebody and that it's meaningful, it's youth-centered, and really, really designed to achieve the outcomes that we want. So having said that, uh, we are at CARC for a very intentional, well, several very intentional reasons, but one of them is because CARC really is and has now been for two decades the primary kind of front-end diversion for San Francisco. Um, and it, started as something that was really a diversion from detention. That was the original point of PARC. Um, and like everything else, I think that we're at a moment of talking about big evolution for it as well. So I will uh, stop, I will end my overview and hand it over to you guys. Um, and let me interrupt for one minute because we have our program committee chair. Our job is to identify what issues we want to delve into as we hear all this so that we can give direction to the program committee about what aspects of this the commission is most interested in pursuing. So I want people to think about that as we move forward with this. And basically our role, one of our roles as the commission is to oversee this whole system and make sure that 
the diversion opportunities are seized whenever whenever possible. Um, and that is the law, I believe. Um, that that is that is our job to do that. So I've asked um, Joanna to sort of track what issues come up that we want to delve into, and I would ask each of the commissioners to think about that. Are you speaking from here? Uh huh. Okay. Where? Yes. I hope. Let's make sure. With the mask on, if we can hear. I'm asking one of our viewers. Okay. Do you want to stand up? <laughs> right in the middle of the room. Hello. <laughs> this is everybody can see me and hear me. I know. Right. I think so. Yes, they can hear you. Okay, great. Um, hi, everybody. Good afternoon. My name is Denise Coleman, and I'm the director of youth justice for Husband Youth Program. And um, I just want to start off by saying, I, excuse me, because I, I have so much on my mind that normally I could just do this freelance, right? But I've had to write everything down because I just can't remember anything right now. Come a little closer. Oh, okay. Being told you need to come closer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I hope everybody heard that. Um, Michael, can you put up you the PowerPoint, please? Sorry, you want to sit here? Did you hear me? Yes, just sorry. Um, just give me a moment. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> is this the one? Yep. Okay. Yes, it is. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So that's who we are. Kirk. Next slide, please. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say what it is. The community assessment. <laughs> it is uh, San Francisco Community Assessment and Resource Center. Here we go. So this is just a CARC overview, all right? Um, so CARC is San Francisco's largest um, juvenile justice diversion program. We have an incredibly unique collaboration on site with SFPD the Sheriff's Department, as well as our CBO partners, and on-site, that is CYC, the Community Youth Center, as well as uh, IFR, Institute of Familia, De La Raza. And uh, what we do is we provide youth with um, a single point of contact at arrest, and all that happens in that single point of contact is assessments, booking, referrals, crisis intervention, intervention and counseling uh, as needed. Next slide, please. And so the history around CARC is one that is, I think, incredibly unique. Um, it was started in uh, the late 90s, right, when a juvenile crime, youth crime, was just incredibly high. I think the first year we had uh, 690 kids, um, some unbelievable number. And so, um, Fortunately, there was some money awarded to San Francisco from the California Challenge Grant, and this afforded us an opportunity to reform uh, juvenile justice in San Francisco. Um, and so what was created was called the Local Action Plan, and it was 
a lot of people that participated in creating the local action plan. There was over 100 participants. That included clergy, CBOs, um, uh, community folks, um, young people, young people in juvenile hall. And so there was a plethora of people that participated in these focus groups to come up with the local action plan. And CARC was a central part of this reform. Um, and so CARC was launched in 1998 by the Lancy Street Foundation. Huckleberry um, soon took over in 2000 as the lead agency. Um, and it's also important to recognize that CARC was created by the people and the citizens of San Francisco. This is San Francisco's program, okay? CARC is San Francisco's program. Huckleberry is our lead agency, but all the people in San Francisco that came together to create this, this is San Francisco's program. Um, it, um, where am I? Okay, and so from the beginning, we've collaborated and partnered with all of our justice-serving agencies. Um, we hold two subcontracts here, and they are actually on site, IFR and, uh, and CYC, and we've held those subcontracts for over 15 years. Um, so the relationships that we've built with our community uh, partners is, to me, unmatched. Next slide, please. Can you say what those agencies are, not just their initials? Oh, yes, the Community Youth Center, CYC, and IFR, Instituto Familia de la Raza. Now, I want you guys to look at this picture because in the window of one of our assessment rooms is uh, some art that was drawn by one of our young people that got arrested for graffiti. And the staff person that was the state manager, I got a grant from Youth Funding Youth Ideas uh, to help them hone their skills. And then ultimately, he created a business plan so that they did the mural that's up at Marshall High School. Um, and so they were so appreciative. They came and they did that. And then there's another mural that I'm going to be so happy to take you guys into the facility so that you can see that too. But yeah, so that's one of the incredible accomplishments our case manager and young people make. So, CARC, as a community-based alternative, um, has changed the front end of processing for youth in San Francisco. Eligible youth brought directly to CARC never to see the inside of a police station or juvenile hall. CARC is physically in the community and has been in the community since its inception. Um, it, it, research has shown that CBOs have been proven to reduce recidivism promote positive outcomes, improve public safety, and are more cost-effective. Next slide, please. So these are some of the things that have happened um, over the last 20 years that CARC has been in existence. Um, so we're not only seeing kids at the point of arrest. Oh, God, about seven or eight years ago, um, in conversation with the district attorney, we started, the district attorney started deferring charges to CARC. Uh, and these charges were charges that came across the district attorney's desk. And after reading the report, there wasn't enough evidence or whatever it was, she felt like they needed additional services and not to be prosecuted. And so she, they diverted them to CARC. Um, we also got a lot of request from SFPD about why we weren't taking kids from out of county because they were engaging and arresting a lot of kids from out of county. So we created just a, like a sub 
kind of a, a program for our young people that come out of county where they are eligible to come to CARC and we do a one-time arrest intervention and legal education around the system, what's going to happen now that they've been arrested and how their case is, probably, is going to be sent back to their county of residence. We have that same conversation with their parents when they come in uh, to let them know what our conversation was like with the young person and what they think might be some of the issues and, and hopefully refer them to some of the services back into their own community. Our, one of the newer programs that we, we are components of PARC is called RESET. And, and the acronym stands for Restoring and Empowering Social Equity and Truth. And uh, this is our juvenile justice circle conferencing program for our young people uh, where there is a person harmed, we're able to bring everybody to the same table and repair the harm. Um, by the young person taking responsibility for their actions and uh, the person harmed being able to um, tell their truth. Uh, the other uh, program component that we've expanded to is called AFTER, and this is aimed to foster transformation and ensure restitution. And we just launched, I know, all of these long at they oh, <laughs> We just launched this program in January, and this is an alternative for young people that have to pay restitution. We all know uh, in San Francisco it is 10%, I think it is 10% of young people and families are eligible to pay restitution. For our young people that cannot pay restitution, there is a civil judgment held over their head. That civil judgment can follow them right on in through adulthood, can impact their ability to get an apartment, get a car, get a job, go back to school. And so we were approaching us if, if we would support uh, creating a program for these young people. Um, and we have, and we've had five referrals. Yes. And, um, and that's been since January. And uh, so far, so good. We have this fund that has been created by the Financial Justice Project that we use to make the uh, person harmed whole. Um, so that they can receive, you know, um, restitution for whatever their loss was when the incident happened. And our young people have the option of getting a job, doing community service hours, going through work workshops, or going through the RESET program. But none of them are ever in a position where they have to pay a dime. The, the victim, excuse me, the person harmed is made whole, the case is done, over, and, and everybody can move on with their lives. Can I get the next slide, please? Um, just so everybody knows, my name is Hillary. I'm the director here at CARC. Um, before I dive into the results, I just want to shout out a lot of the CARC staff are actually here, our senior case manager, my night staff, a therapist. And I just want to shout them out that none of these results are possible without these community members. Up, so, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate you all. Um, so diving into the results, um, like we said earlier, CARC is one of the programs credited with reducing juvenile um, detention bookings in the, roughly the past 20 years. CARC does have a low recidivism rate. We define recidivism within one year. So if a youth works with us and is not rearrested within that year, that is how we define re recidivism. And right now our recidivism rates are at 25 to 30%. Um, CARC does effectively divert to about 
a third of all youth who are arrested are coming through parks for diversion. Um, and so that means that instead of like, as um, Chief Miller was saying earlier, that's diverging from detention and formal probation, okay? So our relationships with probation are still really important and it's not that formal, um, formal probation relationship. And then really with CARC and how we're able to keep our youth engaged and really defer them um, from being rearrested again. We really focus on re-engaging the youth in school because that is a common theme um, and ensuring that they can be successful in school. We support with vocational support, getting them for job readiness and actual jobs for out of school time hours and other positive recreational activities. Or if youth were already engaged in these things, just re-engaging them, reintroducing them to the community that they were engaged with. Can I get the next slide, please? Thank you. Um, so now I really want to go over like the eligibility of youth who are eligible to come to CARC. If a youth lives in San Francisco or attends a public school of San Francisco, they are ages 11 to 17 for all misdemeanors and some felonies except for when youth are already actively on probation, qualifies them to come through CARC. I do really want to clarify the age range a little bit. Um, we're, we're not booking and arresting 11-year-olds. I really want to assure that. Um, but it has happened where police have contact with 11-year-olds, and we are here to support with that. So I do want to be very clear. They are not arrested. They are not booked. But CARC does still help with that process since we uh, do provide wraparound case management services. Um, so that's just clarity on that end of for 11-year-olds. Um, some examples of offenses that we see include battery, assault, possession of cells and drugs, theft, trespassing, stolen vehicle, resisting arrest. Um, there are some charges that do not come through CARC and really do need higher level of care. And those charges, so if we got a call from the police, we would know we would not be serving these youth, include homicide, felony, arson, forcible rape, warrants, and then assaults inflicting very serious injury. So those um, offenses do not come through CARC and we're not supporting them on that end. Next slide, please. So this is the CARC overview process, um, just to kind of give you a snapshot of what happens when a youth is in contact with the police. So it's written in city law, the police need to call CARC. That's <laughs> just really, really that simple um, for any juvenile arrest. The police calls CARC, my wonderful staff takes that information, and then we immediately connect with probation. And with our partnership with probation, we discuss the situation. Probation has certain policies that they provide and run. And then the disposition is decided for that youth. Um, and if the criteria meets that a youth can come to CARC, we're calling back the police and letting them know that the youth should be transported to CARC. Um, we do here at Huckleberry, or at CARC, excuse me, um, have an on-duty sheriff um, on site for this aspect since police are, since youth are coming in um, in custody of police. So we do have the sheriff on site to support with that. Um, when the youth is here, we set them up, make sure they got some snacks and some water in them, and then our case managers meet with them to complete a full assessment. Um, and we will go over our assessment tool a little later. 
Um, we do have an on-site therapist who is here to support in the moment as well, if it is necessary. Um, and we meet as a team to start the case plan uh, for what that youth is going to be um, moving forward. And we also have the legal guardians come meet us here at CARC. After we have met with the youth, completed the assessment, talked to the legal guardian, we are releasing the youth to their legal guardian with all of our contact information, and if we're really lucky, an appointment for our next meeting um, of connecting with them. Uh, traditionally, I mean, uh, on average, a youth stays working with CARC for three to nine months. Um, and with the case plan, we provide, intensive, we provide case management support. We make referrals for mental health services, including therapy within our on-site um, on therapist, and we provide other case management support, such as mentorship and guiding the youth through the process of how we hold them accountable for their offenses. Next slide, please. Um, okay, so this is a little more detailed and specifically on what we provide. Um, we, we are here as legal advocates and systems diversion. It's really clear I'm saying legal advocates. We are not lawyers. That is not our job. Um, but we do support the youth and their family with advocacy. So we support them in working with their probation officer because some youth will have them if they're a felony and coming in. We develop case plans. We work with legal services. We provide uh, monitoring of their case. We really are educating youth and their families to what the juvenile justice system is, what their options are, who, how to contact public defenders and other aspects of that area. And we just accompany the youth and their families through that entire process because it's an intense process and so that they're not alone. We also really focus on social and emotional development. Um, I can't stress it enough, as we talk about case management and as the community, it's all about relationship building. And so we really are looking at building relationships with this youth and with their family um, to ensure trust. Um, we provide referrals for mental health services. If we're noticing that um, maybe um, connecting them to more members of their communities, we are sending referrals all the time. Um, and then we foster relationships also with the legal guardians. Um, and we just do ongoing case management and case planning support. The third real pillar is academic and vocational support. Um, you know, the pandemic has changed everything and school was hard to begin with and now it is just like a trillion times harder. Um, and so it really is focusing on where the youth are at academically and focusing on what their goals are for vocational support. Um, so we really are, we are connecting with their teachers, um, who they're working with at school. We're supporting the parents and legal guardians on how they can advocate for their youth and their educational needs. Our case managers will attend um, IEPs or individual education plan meetings with the youth. Um, we absolutely are connecting youth with jobs. Um, there's so many opportunities in the city, and we mean like paid jobs, um, actual pay checks on that end, resume support, and just getting youth ready for the job, uh, job force on that end. Great. All right, next slide, please. Oh, I need to go faster. Okay. Um, so car case management, this is, I'm going to speed it up real quick um, on that end. So every youth is assigned a case manager. Again, like I repeated earlier, on average, it's three to um, nine months. 
Uh, we support with the legal requirements, school, and connecting the youth. Um, we also refer out for drug intervention, for um, after school programming, primary medical care. We absolutely are assessing if the youth need to go to the doctor. Um, and we support with safe housing as some of our youth do come in without housing. And so we support that too with connecting youth to coordinated entry. All right, the so next slide, please. Um, yep. Yep. Away. All right. Clark, a mental, our mental health services. I know. Hillary and I both are Okay. Clark's mental health. Um, Clark has a very robust counseling department. Um, so much so that we have our therapists are embedded in each one of our programs. And that their primary goal is to serve the young people that come in through that program and when there is uh, available space to do more outpatient um, kinds of engagement with young people too. Um, youth are referred to our, our therapists as needed. Um, the therapists work with youth and sometimes families um, for an average of 10 to 14 meetings. They also facilitate our parents' turn group, which is a support group for uh, parents of adolescents. It's a six-week group and it's done in English and Spanish. Next slide, please. Uh, the screener that we use um, in our assessment tool is uh, called the TESI. And um, the TESI is a traumatic event screening uh, inventory for children. And what it does is it screens um, primarily for a variety of traumatic experiences. When we first started the TESI, God, how long has it been now? Maybe 10, 12 years? Um, it, was, it was really, really hard for our staff to make that shift into including this instrument in our assessment because of all the trauma they themselves had experienced, right? So we had to do a lot of dry runs um, uh, to make sure that the staff felt safe and secure enough that they could talk to these young people about these experiences without just completely falling apart themselves all while doing the assessment. Um, so we have a lot of follow-up conversations with our staff after they do assessments to make sure um, that they're okay. Uh, the CROPS, which is an instrument that's used primarily by the case managers, and it's, it's a screening for symptoms of trauma, like headaches. Did you sleep last night? Have you eaten? How are you sleeping? You know, things of that nature. Uh, to give, um, it's, a, it's a very good opening up to have a more in-depth conversation with a young person. Um, and then, as we mentioned earlier, our SSIS, which is our social and emotional development um, assessment tool that we use to help our young people with the six domains of communication, self-awareness, self-management, relationships, decision-making, social awareness. We have an assessment that gets scored, there's a discussion with the young person about the assessment, and then there are activities to help that young person improve whatever the deficits were. Next slide, please. Okay, this is our... Let me get this. This is, all of you should have the correct slide in your, in your um, pamphlet. As hard as we tried, 
not to put in the wrong slide. Somehow the wrong slide got in there, okay? You see big red, to do, right? So it, it, it has been done. Um, <laughs> and it, it is in your packet. And what this kind of dictates to you is it shows um, the kinds of trauma that our young people are experiencing. 97% um, of the 365 clients screened over the past three fiscal years reported experiencing at least one trauma type. 92% reported two or more types and 82% reported three or more. That's high for our kids, folks. You know, that, that's really high. And the things that were the highest, that were highly endorsed was abuse and neglect at 32%, community violence uh, at, what is that? Uh, at 70%, but if you look at the breakdown over here, it says physical assault, as a victim, 54%. Robbery, victim or witness, 50%. Or witnessing community or school violence. Under domestic violence, witnessing physical, 33% or verbal, 42% domestic violence. Family separation, kidnapping, 6%. Parent incarceration, 10%. Or other kinds of separation, was 28%, uh, for example, um, unaccompanied minors. And then a loss or a threat of loss. Someone close to you has died or was seriously ill or injured. 70% of our kids reported that they knew somebody in that situation. And another had a relative or someone close to them commit suicide, 23%. You know, this is telling. This is all telling, and then when you combine this with what's going on at school, right, we're, we're, we're in a mess. I don't, I don't want to get on that soapbox, because I will. Uh, next slide, please. Next slide. Oh, oh, do you want to talk about that, Doug? No, okay. <laughs> right, that, well, that slide speaks to the number of minutes that our case managers are working on um, with our young people that are experiencing the highest numbers of endorsements uh, from the testing. It's very complicated, it's, it's difficult to understand, and so can we move to the next slide, Michael, please? <laughs> and so here are some of the program outcomes. Yes, sorry. Um, so 89% of cases managed at CARC are successfully complete the probation requirement. Just a little overview on that. Our partnership with probation is that for misdemeanor cases, we hold the youth accountable with restorative practices. Some examples of that are like community service, maybe it's requiring them to participate in mental health services, but we assign what we call agreements and a way to hold the youth accountable for their actions and we collaborate with probation on that. 83% of CAR kids are not rearrested within one year following completion with, with, with that, which is very higher rate compared to youth who are incarcerated. 77% of CAR clients identify as struggling in school, and we support in improving their relationships and improving in school with their behaviors and performance. And 55% of CAR 
um, clients who go through our counseling services um, demonstrate an, an improvement in overall well-being during their course of time. And I really can't stress enough the importance of the trauma that our youth experience, and that number of 79% experiencing three or more, and I'm telling you, most of these youth, it is more than three, is why we are seeing these behaviors. This trauma, the behaviors they're experiencing of illegal activity is directly related to the trauma that these youth experience, and the best way to intervene with trauma is wraparound services addressing all areas of their life. So I just really, really want to highlight that, um, of the importance of how trauma impacts the actions and decisions our youth are making and how we intervene on that behalf. And just to add another little footnote, when I spoke about our therapist who is here, Linda, is our therapist, and they also hold a role that supports the staff, mm -hmm. right, when the staff is having a difficult time to be able to talk to the therapist, to be able to talk to the therapist about their young people and, 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 and creating a dialogue that's going to be more impactful and effective with our young people. So um, we are excited that we have the staff that we have. How much time we have? None? I think we went over. You went so far over. <laughs> I know. But it was very good. Can I ask you that one more thing? You can say anything okay. you want. I would really like this. Who is our, yes, you. Dez is our senior case manager, and he has been the longest case manager here and all, everybody here. What have you been, four years? Yeah. Four years, okay. And I told him I wanted you all to meet him and to, uh, to let you know why he stays as long as he has. Speak up, Dez. Come here and say it. Uh, they got to hear you on the phone, Dez. Do you understand my phone? Yes, I think so. so one of the things I like makes me stay here is like a youth that I dealt with once who got arrested and I reached out to her many times and tried to get her to come in and talk to me. I tried to get her in multiple school places and she would just drop out of this class and not go to school. And literally she just stopped talking to me. She literally just stopped talking to me. I had to close her case and I was like hurt because it was actually the first year I got here, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I can't connect to an African-American lady that really looks like she needs to help. And she uh, got arrested again and came back in, and she immediately walked in the door, and she was like, hi, Dad. And I was like, I thought you hated <laughs> And she just, she was staring, and then uh, Stacy, who was working here at the time, was like, I'm going to give her to you again. And I'm like, no, I don't want her again. I, I, doesn't like me. Like, she really doesn't want to talk to me. She doesn't want to deal with me. And I was like, fine, I'll try. I'll, I'll definitely try. And so we engaged with her again, uh, talked to mom and dad again, tried to see what they needed. And the beautiful thing is, like, she totally opened up to me. She, like, invited me to barbecue. She was like, Dad was meeting me at the barbecue saying, hey, this is her case manager. He's trying to get it right. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so they were trying to get her back into school, and she was, like, like really ready to do this. And for me, it made me believe that, like, even though it doesn't seem the first time that she's trying when they come back to you. And Dad called me, like, six months ago and was like, hey, she graduated. Now, I didn't think this girl was going to ever finish school. 
but she graduated. And he was like calling me like as she's walking across the stage like, How did you get this? I'm like, that's the best She was just going to do it herself. And she's no longer running with the crowd. She's running with, uh, she has a job at the court and she works. And it, it warms my heart just when I run into her because she actually is my neighborhood. I see her all the time in my neighborhood. She's like, hi, Jess. But like, it warms my heart is that, uh, don't quit. You know, and it may not be the first time, and it may not work out the first time, but you try. And it's the ones that come through that you remember the most. And so for me, that's what brings me, that I should get me up in the morning. That that gets me up in the morning to do what I do. Because you never know the person that you may be or reach out to that you help. That's that's big reason why you want that. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So and are you going to start our presentation of Clark? Well, you were going to do a tour? Well, not in the middle of the commission meeting. We'll no. do it after the commission meeting. Because I think it's important for people to see or maybe just hear about sort of how... The process? Well, no, just sort of where it is the okay. police bring a child here yeah. and how they are set up to actually deal with, you know, the police letting right. kids off, et cetera. So maybe... Other than that, you don't need to necessarily. We have a really big that. parking lot outside. Okay, that has a cyclone fence around it. And when we were at our old place on Leavenworth, the police had to double park in the street, and they never knew when kids were going to run. Now coming into the building is really pretty nice. So they come into the building from the back. The whole back side of this um, unit is pretty secure. We don't have any bars on our windows or, or those kind of plank plank locks on our doors, but we do have double bolts that keep this side, we call this the secure side um, of the facility. So the police will escort the young person out of the car into the building. The first person they meet is the uh, sheriff. The sheriff will familiarize them with what is going to happen when they come in here. They'll do a cursory search. Um, and you'd be surprised uh, the number of weapons that police leave on kids anyway. Um, um, and so they, they remove whatever weapons they find, and then they put the young person into one of our assessment rooms. Their guns are locked away into a gun locker, and uh, one of the case managers or assessors will go in and, and let the young person know where they're at, what's going to happen to them while they're here, and that we want to get them reunited with their families and guardians as quickly as possible. We go through the assessment process. We call the families and guardians. They come and pick them up. We have an extensive conversation with them about, you know, what they think might be some of the issues because all the time our young people are not forthcoming about what's really going on. And then sometimes the parents aren't either. So you got to kind of, you know, build those relationships so that you are able to get to the nuts and bolts of what's going on with that young person. And then we release them into the custody of their parents and they go home. So I, um, before we move on, the JBD is going to give the data from their perspective mm -hmm. about the utilization of CARC. And I do want to say I, I, I come with a strong bias about this, having been part of the initial plan for what CARC should be. And it was intended that every child should be brought here. That it become you know, that it is a community based intake where the, the buck stops here, and we really have a way of diverting young people from the justice system. And my frustration with the whole system 
is that we have not been able to make that happen to the extent that it, that, that it should and could. Um, and that is certainly something I would like to see our program committee look at, like how can we expand, we have this resource that doesn't exist in most cities in the, in the country. It has a national reputation. Denise, who has been here since day one, has a national reputation for having created this unique and very special service. So the issue is how can we maximize the utilization of CARP. Um, and in addition to like how can we stop then, you know, the next step into a system using CARP more effectively, they are also our interface with police. So if you want to know what's going on in this city in terms of what police alternatives, what what policies are being being uh, um, are happening it's Denise who's working that out. Um, and so I think that that is another aspect of this we need to explore more fully. It's like how can we, through their connection with parks, have our police officers use more alternatives. So, I mean, just keep that in mind as we think about CARC. And I think it was great to hear how great it is. So my feeling is this is great. We should do more. I think a clarifying point just for eligibility, if a kid lives in San Francisco and they need support, we at CARC will serve them whether they have been arrested or not. We call that services only. Um, so parents and schools, like if there's a kid struggling and needing support, call us. We're going to meet with them. Um, so just they don't have to have contact with police right. to come and participate at CARC so, and receive and services. And my, my response to that is, Great, mm -hmm. except I wish I had heard more about how you're a hub to get kids to all the other wonderful services that happen here. Because I feel like one of the things that's happened is you guys have been become the main service and this whole idea, which we started out with, which is that you would be the hub that would connect you to James, that would connect you to the agencies rather than sort of doing all the work here yourself. So that's another aspect of this which I think is is could be very important. You are hey, up. Can I, can I add before we start this? Because, you know, my just jumped out there. And I think everybody in San Francisco should come in the car. Um, San Francisco is pretty big. We have a lot of community have a lot of diversity, we have a lot of, you know, young people that's in need of this kind of support, right? And we talk about being a space where, you know, I'm looking around at your staff and I can tell right now everybody in here is overwhelmed already. So like at the end of the day, how do you bring that into other locations and that kind of help and that kind of work or that kind of and uh, everybody has their way of how they work with their community, their young people, and all that, right? Um, and, you know, the mental health piece plays such a big part mm -hmm. in everything you're doing. I'm looking over at your, your, your mental health mm -hmm. provider over here. Oh, Munda. Right. And I, and, and I you know, just, yeah. I'm going to tell you all, I, you know, for me, I can tell that it's, it's overwhelming for her right now. So she would not be able to keep up with the trauma everything that came through 
that not even today, right now, that the trauma that's coming through the system and the young people that we deal with today, right? It, it is like beyond. It is. You guys better get it. Like, like beyond. You know, one organization, and I tell everybody, this is, you know, I, it's bigger than me. Yeah. Right. Than I feel like we're saying the same yeah, thing in a lot of ways. You, talk about you know, the, the question is, how do we spread this right. out yeah. around so that it isn't one staff that's no, overwhelmed, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. how can we see I mean, that how do you share? it's how more of a... We aren't, we're moving yeah. in the direction. I'm more spoke yeah. yeah. to the meeting right now yeah. with yeah. Uh, the juvenile justice uh, service providers. Yeah. So that we can start doing that, referring to them, yeah. uh, because I mean, it absolutely yeah. is a law. Because if it's yeah. the law yeah. that the cops call here, they don't call, it, then that's your job. Yes, yeah. is to be the spokes that get out well, to yeah. the other yeah, the but, other uh, places. You know, for me, you know, like I say, and, and, you know, for me, and I'm a judge, and I say this, you know, out of the passion and the work, um, is that you know is like it's, it is, it is so many different aspects to how you function with a young person, mm -hmm. right? And where that young person comes from, what that upbringing is, right? And is you know if some space is ready for them, right? And you know when you say your referrals, and you know I guess this will come up at some point when you talk about referrals, how many referrals do you get from KPD on a, on a monthly basis? And and not just that when you talk about police officers who do that, how many people do you think they pull over that they refer on their own? So when you give them that authority, sure. then right. the most people that end up referred somewhere is people of color. Mm -hmm. So what about all the other things that go in on in the process when we start talking about giving police officers the ability and authority to decide, you know, who gets detention right. or who gets right. detention and who doesn't? So that is, you know, all that stuff plays a part for me in, in this work, right? And when you ask yourself, right, for you, when you ask yourself why you do your, this work, that's not the question. The question is, it's not you, then who? Mm -hmm. So that's what you always ask yourself when we do this work. It's not you, then who? So you're always looking line and see who's behind you. So we and do have you some, want to pass we just on. have so, some you know, answers. My president here gets to talking about you. Bias, I get it, but understand the magnitude of the work that comes with all this, guys. Because I'm just telling you, there's some drama going on in these communities right now, and it means a lot. And for me, it means a lot. And I don't never want to give it to one space or one place and say that that's it. You know, no, no. Yes. The only reason we have 10, 11, and 12 people in jail is because there's so many other other organizations I think that's, doing the work. I Absolutely. think we should ask our program committee, which you are on, yeah. to address the issue you just raised. And I just got a note from um, Emily. Uh, you know, I, I can't do it. Goldstein, Goldman, Goldfarb, Goldrick, Goldman. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, just have known too many golds. But, um, so she has to leave, and she is the public defender. This being a little out of order, because I, we were going to call on Selena to answer James's questions about how many, who, etc. But I, I think that you know Emily. No, well, you don't. Have, you got 15 minutes. You can speak to, you know, what you were going to say, but also how we can turn this into more of a hub 
Poor um, generation. Well, I, don't, I, I don't know that I have all those answers. They're not done. Okay. Alright. Um, you want to tell people where you first were? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, the first thing I want to tell everybody is Okay. I'm loud. The, the first thing I'd like to tell everybody is that I'm really going to be brief. Um, I have a daughter that's coming home from her first year of college and I have to pick her up from the airport. But I would like to introduce myself to those of you that don't know me. My name is Emily Goldman and I am the managing attorney at the Public Defender's Office in the Youth Defender Unit right now. Um, and while I'm new to that position, I'm not new to this work. I have been um, in the trenches uh, representing kids in San Francisco in the delinquency system for over 20 years. And um, aside from that, I, um, I'm a San Francisco native. I grew up here and I feel I identify with this population um, even outside of my professional career. And it's a population that I really care about. And um, in fact, I became a lawyer um, intentionally just so that I could do this work. Um, a little bit uh, other piece of history is that before I began work in the public defender's office, I worked um, at Park along with Chief Miller. Denise came shortly thereafter. It was, um, it was uh, in the very first iteration of the um, local plan to overhaul the juvenile justice system in our city. And um, to, to um, President Brocken's statement about seeing every kid come to park, my understanding of what it was going to be at that time, over 20 years ago, is that every child would come through park. And um, I was, I was um, happy to see the statistics um, that about 30% of the kids are getting cited directly here um, rather than being booked, rather than being cited directly to probation department. And that is something that I would like to see grow um, and become a much more significant number. The other thing I wanted to say, um, I know there's some legislative barriers as to who can come to park and who cannot. That's something maybe we should table for another discussion on how we can um, hopefully modify those. But in my view, the same kid that committed the graffiti offense is the same kid that's booked on a homicide offense, which is the same kid that's got caught up in a carjacking. It's all the same kid. And um, in my view, they all deserve the same kind of um, community support, um, and they should all be steered away from carceral pathways. Um, I think we're growing. I think we're getting beyond that. And it is very hard to talk about diversion today without um, acknowledging the recall that happened yesterday. And um, um, my overwhelming concern right now, and what I want to speak to directly to the commission about, is that after Chase McGee's tenure, we have um, made some pretty significant advances in diverting kids. And I am very worried that that is going to change. Um, and so, although we need to continue to move the ball forward, we also have to make sure that we don't lose the momentum um, of reform that we have been on um, over the past couple of years. Um, and specifically, what I am 
seeing in my unit, which is completely new, um, well, new under, um, new relatively speaking over the past few years, is every time somebody gets booked, even before somebody gets booked, I'm having a conversation with the district attorney's office. We are identifying CBOs such as Park and others. Um, my justice partner, CJCJ, is, is on here. Um, Ron is here from Sunset Youth Services. We have a number, as you all well know, of very, very competent CBOs that can serve our kids in this city. And we are identifying those people along with our collaborators, and that's actually what it has been, collaborating alongside probation officers, alongside district attorneys to um, steer kids out of the formal adjudication um, that we have historically been entrenched in in the city. And I don't want to lose that. Um, to put it in a little bit of context, it wasn't too long ago that our juvenile hall had 130 to 150 kids in it every single day. Um, and um, on any courtroom calendar in the morning, to have a couple of dozen kids handcuffed, being marched into a holding tank. Um, the kids in this community have, um, uh, were at alarming rates, were being removed from their homes and being placed in distant facilities sometimes even out of state quite often. And that has changed, and that is fantastic. Um, but we have a lot more we need to do, and we certainly can't lose what we already have. Um, I do want to say that on my white hair, I happen to be on Miranda duty today. For those of you that don't know that, the Public Defender's Office, due to some fantastic um, new legislation, is now contacted every single time a minor is um, detained by San Francisco Police, uh, police Department, which is across the state. Um, so we take turns being counseled to answer those calls. On my way here, I got a call um, of a 13-year-old dependent, um, so a, a young child who has um, documented findings of being abused and or neglected. Um, who was being detained for what San Francisco Police Department calls a robbery. That robbery was um, a theft from Walgreens that probably um, became somewhat elevated with some type of resistance while leaving the store. Uh, in my view, there is a whole, uh, there, 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 there is a lot of different kinds of robberies, but because it was classified as a robbery, um, that child is getting booked right now, and that should not happen. That should not happen in this city, and it shouldn't happen in any other place. Um, so that is to illustrate the point that although we've come a long way, we have a lot more we need to do, and um, I want to make sure that everybody knows that my door is open. I, people have my cell phone, and if you don't, please ask me for it. If you have concerns about something that's happening in the hall, in the community with these kids, um, or if you um, have questions, or if you have ideas, um, I'm very, very open and receptive to hearing from them. So I think one job of the commission is to monitor what does happen when we have a new DA and how that does affect all the progress that we have made. Um, and 
we have to keep our eye on that. You also suggested that the fact that people have gotten used to the idea that the hall isn't really closing has changed some aspects of your job. Didn't we talk about that, or maybe you don't need to talk about that right now? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot That's to say right. about that subject. Okay, yeah. okay. We, won't, yeah. we won't talk about it now. But So we have a, a, a great system now where the public defender, the DA, you know, there is a whole work in progress to prevent, to get a child back into the community, and there is some jeopardy. Some jeopardy. Yes, I, I feel it's a fragile system, um, and probation is at this table as well, collaborating along with us, um, but it's fragile, and what I would like to see happen, and maybe the commission can get involved in this, is I think some of these things need to be um, um, formalized, there needs to be policies and procedures so that when administrations change, when roles change, when um, you know uh, great leaders that are heading agencies right now move on to something else, or great judges become justices, or whatever it may be, that these great things that we've created in, in our city remain. Thank you. I have a quick comment. I just, I just want to thank you very much for wonderful presentation you made. And I'm so happy to see somebody like you who is carrying on the fantastic level. I work for the city for 22 years. I remember when Jeff came to my office, baby, and said, what can I do to help you for the baby? And I said, well, they cannot do job. They cannot do X, Y, Z. What can you do to help them? The idea of safety was wrong down there. Because you can provide me with a place, we will be sending somebody, two people here every month, who will be coming here to talk about safety and safety can expand the, the challenge we have. And I'm so happy people like you that we have passion for, people who are on our education. I really thank you for that. Well, thank you. I really, really, I'm impressed. And thank you for that comment, Commissioner Moses. So I'm going to move us along. Thanks, Emily. And thank you so much, Emily Golden. I'm going to move us along to answer some of the questions that James raised because we do have some data and as quickly as we can present it, honestly, seriously. All right. I will try to go as quickly as possible, but I timed myself earlier and it's 18 minutes, so <laughs> I'll try to talk fast. Um, if you can't hear me at any point, just yell at me to speak louder. Mike, can you please, can you please share the Park Diversion Deep Dive presentation? All right. Um, so good evening, everyone. My name is Julia Cuevas. I am the researcher for the Juvenile Probation Department. Today I'm going to talk about park diversion at point of arrest. I want to give a huge thank you to Denise, to Rachel, and to Hillary for both providing the data and also helping me make sense of the data. Uh, I am a data and research person, so this is me learning all about parks through doing this presentation, and so all of your help and patience was very much appreciated. Okay, next slide, Mike. 
Okay. So quickly, this has been discussed already, uh, but I just want to go over what the existing policy is on CARP eligibility. Uh, this policy was written in 2015. So I want to note something that Chief Miller has said repeatedly is that this exclusionary criteria that I'm about to go over did not exist when CARP first started. So, um, Mike, if you could go to the next slide. So what is in policy? As I said, it is very outdated. So you will see in gray at the bottom things that are no longer applicable. And so the exclusionary criteria that really is currently applicable is um, young people who reside outside of San Francisco and do not attend school in San Francisco, um, youth who are referred for a 707B offense, youth with active warrants, youth who are currently active with JPD, and this is active in any sense of the word, right? It says defined as citation, petition, being on probation. And then and then also uh, youth who are inappropriate for immediate referral to CARS due to inebriation, prostitution, and trafficking or other cause. I just want to highlight that youth who are referred for a 707B offense and youth with active warrants, as was mentioned earlier, um, most of these cases would be booked, so they would not be cited. Um, just want to note that. And then if you could go to the next slide, Mike. Even more eligibility considerations that are in the policy include the DRI score, a young person's DRI score, prior record, injuries or threats made to the victim, uh, the young person's combative, emotionally unstable, or under the influence, and if the young person brandished a weapon. So a ton of exclusionary criteria and considerations. Uh, this was also mentioned briefly that there are cases where the Referral to the district attorney is mandatory. This is outlined in the Welfare and Institutions Code. You can go to the next slide, Mike. I highlighted the, the three that mostly apply in most cases. So if a young person has been referred for a 707B offense, if a young person under the age of 14 um, at the time of their offense is coming in on their second felony referral, or if a young person is 14 or older at the time of offense, and the offense is a felony referral. Um, and then additional scenarios, but those are the most common in the data. Mike, if you could go to the next slide, please. Now going into, oh, now I lost it. Okay, the deep dive overview of what this analysis actually is. This is a very like preliminary exploratory analysis to better understand the current utilization of posts and what are these existing barriers to utilization so like you can do something about them. I'm not going to go through all the questions because I will answer the research questions through the actual presentation. If you could go to the next slide, please. So an overview of the data sources that were used, uh, JPD data on all calls from law enforcement to JPD in 2020 and 2021, all cases referred to JPD in that same time period. And then using CARP data, all cases refer to CARP in that same time period. There are a lot of caveats and limitations to data, and so I just want to briefly note them. Um, when merging two data sets that were never created to really be merged, there's a lot of potential for errors, right? Even in just spelling of names. Um, and so merging data that's entered in silos makes that more likely. Uh, also, historical data was pulled 
to figure out like what were the exclusionary criteria that kept a young person from being connected to SPARC. And so if that data at the time of referral was wrong, then like everything I'm making sense of it to say is also wrong. So I just want to note that. Um, also, the ability to answer specific research questions, right? Data is collected based on stakeholder priorities, areas of interest, capacities. And so not every question that we have, I think we currently have the ability to answer with our existing data. But, you know, as we talk about data collaboration, I think we can really improve on that. Next slide, please, Mike. All right, so my methodology. I will go over this briefly. The scope of the analysis was really just all citations, those that have intake at CARC and those with intake at JTB. Um, and so what I did was I limited our JTB referral data to just those for citations. And with the CARC data, looking at cases referred to CARC at point of arrest. I tried to match these data sets um, using fuzzy matching uh, on name, date of birth, and arrest date to come up with my final data set. So those citations that were connected to CARC at arrest and those that were not. All right, next slide, please, Mike. Okay, so this is the first set of findings on law enforcement calls to JCP, arrest outcomes. This, these findings were kind of already discussed a little bit, but the main takeaway here is that when looking at law enforcement calls to JCP by arrest outcomes, 55% resulted in a booking, 3% detained and released by agency, and 42% resulted in a citation. Of those that resulted in a citation, 30% were cited to CARP, and 70% were cited to JTB. I want to note here that cited to JTB includes cases that were transported to CARP for intake, but then were cited to JTB. Percentage of what number? So I can sure. say I'm so
just a, 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 a it's just starting to be a fog that's just just actually not getting to the the problem as we know it. And like Denise and her people said earlier, our people are traumatized, y'all. This these communities are traumatized. And we can't keep going around playing with numbers on about this percentage. I'm down. I'm, I'm getting tired. Because, you know, no, 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 no. Let me tell you this, President. I'm getting tired because all we come in here, we spend 40 hours, uh, two hours on percentage of what? And then, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, like that lady just said up there on her way here, somebody was getting arrested. Somebody was getting abused. And somebody, we can't keep doing this. If we want to be impactful and be a commission that has some kind of impact, then we have to talk about the reality of what we're dealing with. And if it's 50 kids going in on a monthly basis, then what percentage of them kids are getting recommended to CART and what percentage is getting booked in? So it's, it's, it's just, just them numbers that I need to understand because I know in that time that you give me, you know, I know this much. I got a whole bunch of little young people out there getting traumatized. They're carrying guns at 10 and 11. I just had a little boy steal a car, 12 years old. He got riding around somewhere. We can't find him. And this same little boy been in this system for the last year. So and nobody I, seems I, to know what to do with him. I want to I'm just support. saying this is where my patience is and where we, get, where we start doing this and having these four-hour conversations about numbers. It just doesn't, it's just like we're not going to make a change if we keep doing that. So I so, want to support what you're saying. That's just me, y'all. Change. Not just me, that's just me, and I'm like, it's starting to be a little, a little funky when I start seeing that. This is my third meeting of the day where everybody went in there and just started throwing up a bunch of data and just saying, but you know, at the whole time, I'm watching, I got three, three cases down there that I know it's going to be a problem. So this is me, not not you, you know, I you know, I appreciate your work, but, you know, in the process of them doing this work, if they give them the number, give them, you know, give them how many people came in, how many people just went to the car, how many people did this, instead of doing all that. I'm just saying, you know, for us, you know, for me, and I guess, I don't know well how I heard the other commissioners feel, but, you guys, I am embedded in this, I am passionate about this, and I want to make a change, and we can't keep doing it, doing the same old thing. And that's it. Can I interrupt you? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you. I think that is a really wise recommendation. The numbers are so small. It is really important to know what the real numbers are. What we always say percentage. I'm saying, you know, really, how many kids is it? So I think that would be a real important contribution I, I, to how we present the data. Right. Can we let Selena keep going so we can? Yeah. Okay, but I also would like to say, yeah, yeah, yeah that we uh, the city get guidance with such small sample sizes about what we can say and can't say related to confidentiality and privacy and being able to identify when it's such small numbers. So here, where it's a very large number. Yes, the number is there, but as we get later in the presentation and you start getting into very specific cutting of the data, like, I totally hear what you are saying, but I'm trying, we as a department are trying to balance these two things. And I think we're still trying to strike the right balance, and I completely appreciate No, no, it's not jealous of that frustration, too. Yep, 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%.
So, so you all have question. to say, step up and say, so let's you know move what? on. Let's, let's, let's move, move on. on. So okay, you can do your thing. I just saying, because I know where it comes from, and yeah. I did the same thing that just happened when we found out what happened to the supervisor's <laughs> office, the same thing that just happened with nobody knew about it. Now it gets to be done up there. All that stuff went behind us, whatever. And just the same thing is the same thing here. So, you know, just like we, we know where it comes from, and it's just so frustrating sometimes. You have the right to say I'll have Selena move on forward, yeah. and I am yeah, gonna, and I want to just make just a hundred percent clear that wherever possible, Commissioner, there are both numbers and percentages here, so that you can get a sense of how many kids or how little kids, how few kids, Emma, we're actually talking about. So I'm going to have her continue because I know there's still more to do. Thank you, um, Mike. Can you take it to the next slide, please? All right. So now we are going to look at citation pathways. Those pieces that go through intake at CARP versus those pieces that go through intake at JCC. This is a place where it is just percentages because of small numbers related to CARP intake. Um, Mike, if you could go to the next slide. Um, so here is looking at demographics and the differences in demographics between CARP intake and JCC intake. The main takeaway here is that JCC intake citations were more at a higher percentage um, of Successful, these young people continued on with services. 
And then 13% had unsuccessful completion um, where they did not complete their requirements. You could go to the next slide. Looking at part programming, median length of stay. Um, the median length of stay overall for young people in CARP programming, terminate CARP programming is 16 weeks, so about four months. This is 12 weeks or three months for young people who terminate unsuccessfully. And as you see, for those who terminate successfully, it's about the same as overall. All right, we can go to the next slide, please. So looking at CARB termination outcomes, again, breaking it by cases that are cited to CARB versus those cases that were brought to CARB and then cited to the ACB. So cases that are cited to CARB, it is very rare that a petition will be filed. Um, only 2% of cases, again, percentages, because it's such a small number. Um, looking at cases that are brought to CARB and cited to JPB, here you see that 38% of these cases have a petition filed. Again, these are cases where for young people ages 14 and over cited for felonies, it's a mandatory referral to the district attorney's office. Looking at petition dispositions together, because again, it's such small sample sizes, um, most cases that do have a petition filed resolved as the petition dismissed or suspended in favor of 654 informal probation. Um, the, very few cases that were committed to out-of-home placement is related to program failure and picking up any serious case. We could go to the next slide. Now looking at cases that had intake at JTB, their pathways and exclusionary criteria. You could go to the next slide, please. There's really only one pathway that accounts for 100% of cases cited to JTB, so 209 cases. Um, the case is cited to JTB, and then it is released from station slash field. And what these cases are is mostly young people cited for felonies that are mandatory referrals to the DA and meet one of the various exclusionary criteria that I went over at the beginning, or you cited when park is closed for felonies that are mandatory referrals to the DA, which is something that I'll go into right after this. I just wanna note that the district attorney can also refer cases to CARC uh, because this is already such a deep, deep dive, so it wasn't the focus of this analysis, but um, the district attorney had referred 5% of these cases um, back to CARC with consequences by the end of the study period, so by the end of 2021. We could go to the next slide, please. All right, so the kind of biggest question that we've all been asking ourselves is like how exclusionary criteria is affecting young people's ability to be connected to CARC. And so when looking at cases that went through JPB intake, 29% um, of those citations had no exclusionary criteria, while 71% had one or more exclusionary criteria. You see the breakdown by race and ethnicity. You see that for black youth, it's a slightly higher percentage than for Latinx youth or other youth. Um, if we could go to the next slide, please. And then when looking at the specific criteria that I outlined at the beginning that we can look at looking at data. Um, it's very few young people who are being um, cited for 707B offenses. You would only really be cited for a 707B offense if you are under the age of 14. Otherwise, that would be a mandatory booking. Um, but it's much more common that they are out-of-county young people or that they have an active case at the time of 
So 40% were out-of-county youth, and about a quarter had an active case at the time of referral. And so once I looked at that, I was interested in, okay, so the young people that have no exclusionary criteria, why are they not being connected to park at point of arrest? Why are they not going through intake at park? So if we could go to the next slide, please, Mike. Um, so for all of these cases, or I couldn't figure it out from the data readily, I went through all the case notes to try and determine why they weren't connected to park at arrest. Um, that was kind of a hit or miss depending on the case, but it does appear that up to 45%, almost half, the reason why they didn't go to park was because they were an otherwise park eligible felony arrest that took place when park was closed. We can go to the next slide. So this brought us to the next question of how day and time of arrest um, matches up with the park schedule. And so here, looking at uh, citations by day of the week, about a quarter of citations happen during the weekend um, when park is not open. And then looking at by time of arrest, the next slide, um, I will just preface this by saying that our arrest time data is extremely limited. For this time period, we learned today that it has gotten better in 2022. So this is based off a small subset of cases where there was arrest time noted. And so 80, what it showed was that 80% of cases um, were when park was open, 15% after park does their last intake at 9.15 p.m. between 9.15 and midnight, and 4% before park opens, so in the early morning. All right. All right, now I'm going to takeaways and next steps. So if we could go to takeaways, please. So as I mentioned at the beginning, currently only about 30% of citations are cited to CARS, while 70% are cited to JTC, though some of those do have intake happening at CARS. For citations not connected to park at arrest, 70% of cases meet at least one exclusionary criteria. Felony arrests that occur when park is closed and would otherwise be connected to park services at arrest appear to be bypassing park altogether and then not being reconnected to park. Um, and then looking at park-specific data, so most young people that are connected to park successfully complete the program, and for those few cases connected to park with petitions filed, most of those resolved as the petition being dismissed or suspended in favor of 654 informal probation. All right, now going to next steps. So conversations that have been happening internally and with PARC about where do we go from here. So reviewing and modifying PARC policy and eligibility to increase diversion where appropriate. Exploring ways um, to increase PARC linkages outside of PARC business hours so as to not need to keep PARC open, um, such as a mobile case manager. Also creating the widest touch of the juvenile justice system possible for youth who are cited. Um, police transport young people in handcuffs. How can we avoid such an intensive juvenile justice system experience when possible? Uh, something that was touched on earlier, determining how CARC fits into the care team model. And then also how to increase data sharing to better monitor connection to CARC and track outcomes and more easily analyze this data and, you know, 
all the answer all the questions we have related to parks going forward. Um, so those are all that's like the meat of my presentation. I am happy to take questions about the data. I'm also happy to uh, take questions to the park experts where I do not know the answers. Thank you. Thank you, Selena. Thank you. Um, so, one, I want to invite you to attend the program committee, <laughs> which will delve into some of your next steps and recommendations as prioritized by the commission at this meeting, particularly how we can get more kids and more kids out to the agencies. So, I don't know if the CARC people have any comments at this point, but I do, we have two more people who are sort of add wisdom to this whole discussion. So um, I would like to call upon the next person on the program, which is about... I have a quick question for you on page 18. Yes. The program closed out, fine, not at all. What do you mean by that? you want to touch on that? So he asked about... Uh, when the program is closed out and the client is not at fault, it's a very small number of cases, but that's an outcome. Oh, oh, okay. That means that for whatever reason, um, we had to close the case. Maybe they moved out of town. The family moved out of town, or something that wasn't the fault of the kid. He didn't get rearrested. It was at, it was out of his control or her control, and so it's by no fault. Thank you. So we have one person online. Is the DDAP presenter online? She's here. Oh, there she is. Can I share my screen, please? Yes. Just give me a few seconds here. Thank you. Okay, you should be able to share now. <laughs> Can you all see this? Oh, I should do this. Is that better? I should start, yes? Yeah, I think so. Okay, okay, thank you, sorry. Um, thank you, President Brodkin. Hello, commissioners, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much. Wanted to uh, appreciate you giving me some time and some space to talk to you this evening. My name is Tinky Monik Enti, and I am the Deputy Director at the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. Um, in the following few minutes, I'll share with you what the Detention Diversion Advocacy Program, or DDAP, is, what it does, and how it's doing. Now to determine how to flip the screen. Oh, there you go. Okay. So a brief background. Um, I'll, I'll be quick, don't worry. In um, 93, uh, CJCJ developed DDAP to reduce unnecessary youth detention and length of stay and to increase community engagement with our youthful offenders. 
DDAP was the first evidence-based pre-adjudication diversion program for high-risk youth in the nation. DDAP targets the highest-risk youth in San Francisco's juvenile detention center. Sorry, just open the screen. Okay. okay. So why DDAP? DDAP was designed to divert youth who have been charged with serious offenses and are either in juvenile detention or likely to be held for detention. DDAP's overall goal is for our participants to be embraced by our community, for them to remain in the community and access community-based case management and other necessary supports, rather than being processed through the traditional juvenile justice system. How does it all work? DDAP works with justice system partners, primarily defense attorneys, to identify youth who are already in detention or likely to be detained pending their adjudication. Once a potential GDAP client is identified, staff talk to the youth, the family members, and other interested and invested individuals to build a release plan that includes referrals to community-based agencies. DDAP staff work with neighborhood organizations to expedite release from detention while making informed referrals to community programs. Our staff contact the community providers to identify if the provider is an appropriate fit for the youth's specific circumstances and if they are able to serve the youth immediately based on current capacity and their other eligibility criteria. This allows DF to provide a unique bridge between the Juvenile Detention Center and San Francisco's diverse community. By promoting the use of community-based services, DDAP performs an essential function in the evolving system of juvenile justice services. The DDAP release plan maps the client's needs and strengths and may include family support, individual counseling, academic tutoring, substance use programs, mental health services, and whatever that specific youth needs. Our staff work with the client, their families, their defense attorneys, community providers, and probation to develop community-based service plans with pro-social and client-centered interventions featuring engagement with appropriate community providers for the purpose of promoting long-term rehabilitation. The wealth of community-based organizations in San Francisco provides a network of care and service within which different services and resources are coordinated by our team. We do not use a cookie-cutter approach where one size fits all or one service fits everyone's needs. The DDAP release plans are individually tailored for the unique needs of each individual youth. The plan is then presented in court. Staff are present in court to provide additional information and details regarding the youth, their release plan, and the specific linkages made thus far. If the judge assents, the youth is released and is able to avoid incarceration, an outcome that is shown to have complex and lasting detrimental effects. 72% of DDAP recommendations are adopted by the court. What's the value? 
The value of DDAP lies in the community. Case managers, mentors, teachers, vocational specialists, and countless other community providers and community partners who can all serve as credible messengers for our youth and our young adults are able to connect with the youth in an organized and coordinated fashion. TDAP allows San Francisco's resources to be fully utilized and maximized. This program reduces the number of mostly youth of color who are unnecessarily held in the city's juvenile hall. GDAP combats the continued criminalization of young people of color. Is it truly diversionary? Unlike some diversion programs, GDAP intentionally aims to serve youth who are facing serious charges and are at high risk to reoffend. Many DDAP clients have a substantial list of previous justice system contacts, as well as specialized needs, such as substance abuse, educational difficulties, or even gang involvement. This approach of targeting higher-risk young people helps prevent net widening. Net widening is the risk of increasing the reach of criminal or juvenile justice control by sweeping low-risk clients who might not have otherwise been caught up into the system. Another mechanism that assures against net widening is that DDAP relies on defense attorneys for referrals. By relying on defense attorney referrals, DDAP ensures that only clients who are otherwise highly likely to face detention are sent to DDAP for consideration. What are the outcomes? DDAP significantly reduces the likelihood that youth will return to the justice system. Hundreds of San Francisco's hardest to serve youth have seen success through DDAP. DDAP clients are among the highest risk and hardest to serve in our city. But by adopting, I'm sorry, but by advocating for alternatives to detention and providing services outside of the traditional justice system, DDAP leverages community resources to ensure each client's success. An external evaluation of our program last year did an analysis using data from 76 DDAP young people and a comparison group of 76 similarly situated systemed-involved youth who were not supported by DDAP. This evaluation was presented to the Commission in a prior meeting, so I won't go into great detail. But just to provide a few of the highlights, as you can see on the screen, the recidivism analysis of whether youth received any subsequent justice system referrals found that the comparison group had a 74% recidivism rate compared to a 51% rate in the DDAF group. The evaluation also showed the comparison group had a almost 54 point, I'm sorry, almost 54% felony recidivism rate compared to 23 in the DDAF group. Finally, the average number of cumulative subsequent charges and cumulative felony charges between the two groups also showed a significant difference. The comparison group averaged 3.2 felony referrals and DDAF clients averaged only about 1.6. Now, who are we serving? DDAP serves all youth. 
there are no youth, we won't serve. The following slides will show some of the demographic data sets regarding who we serve most commonly. Since its founding, GDAP has served hundreds of youth in the city and in replication sites across the U.S. In 1718, fiscal year alone, GDAP worked to try to divert almost 60 youth in San Francisco. GDAP is an integral to San Francisco's robust continuum of juvenile justice services and has led a decades-long effort to reduce unnecessary and costly youth detention. As you can see from this slide, the majority of our youth are African-American, followed by Latinx youth. These trends remain consistent given the population seen inside the juvenile hall. Approximately 73% of our DDAP youth are between the ages of 18 to 24, and about 27% are 17 years old or younger. During fiscal year 1920, over 80% of our DDAP youth were boys, and about 19% were girls. Lastly, if you have any questions, there's my email address. Please don't hesitate to contact me. And if you want to um, review the full GDAP evaluation from last year, you can visit the link on your screen. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Stacey. Um, does anybody have any questions? You can see how this fits into the continuum that our chief was talking about, so that there are many places along this system where diversion is possible. And it is remarkable to me just listening to this because I didn't realize how many national model programs we have here that we really have such a rich array of possibilities. So I would send this to the program committee to see how we're going to maximize the use of all these. I'm going to go on to the next person as part of this presentation, which is uh, Don Stuckel, who is the director of Sunset Youth Services, and who is going to talk on behalf of what you hear about all the time, the Juvenile Justice Providers Association, um, because, yeah, there's an opportunity for them to talk about their number one issue, which is diverting kids to the, to the community-based providers. Thank you, uh, President, Madam. And I will keep my brief. I think the JJPA is the only one that does not have a PowerPoint. So um, IT guys can stand down. Uh, I do just have a quick some points to make, and that is really to to the point that um, that. Chief Miller made in the very beginning, which is it's not only diverting from, it is diverting to. And that is something that I think as CBOs funded to be in this mix, we've said for, we've been saying quite loudly for quite a while now, is that you are diverting to the CBOs that are here to James's point, right? There's a lot of really rich work going on in the city and, um, and a lot that's happening. So I'm going to stick to my script so I don't go all over the place. But um, 
JJPA is a, as an organization, stands for the Juvenile Justice Providers Association. We're an association made up of 20 or so local community-based agencies, including CARC. And so uh, also to, to the point that James made, CARC works really closely with organizations um, all over the city, not just the ones that they mentioned that they have subcontracts with, but they they do effectively um, refer out to organizations. Uh, and while they may hold a kid for, you know, three months to nine months or whatever, but the CBOs that are working with those kids are a much longer relationship. Um, we work, the JJPA typically works with um, both justice-impacted youth, PAYA, and families. So there's a variety of things involved. Founded um, to embrace, respect, guide, and support youth to be successful in their lives, we serve as a collective voice for service providers advocating for systems change. We promote a strength-based, culturally relevant system that promotes individual and community empowerment. The Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families funds $12 million of services in the community the services are, are funded are the services that are funded include multi-service agencies, gender-specific services, cultural programming, and detention-based services. Every agency that was awarded funding participated in a competitive vetting process, has committed to contractual obligations for service, and must submit monthly data to a client management system as part of DCYF's oversight process. Additionally, DCYF contracts with independent evaluators to ensure these agencies are meeting their desired outcomes for clients. Despite being funded specifically to serve justice-involved youth, these agencies have historically been underutilized and often seen as competition. So the point we're trying to make is that we are not standing in competition with anybody. We are actually the what do you, what are we diverting kids to? We're diverting them to what is existing in their, pro, in their communities to hold them and their families. When referrals are made, they're typically post-disposition to organizations funded to assist in fulfilling probation requirements, which is not the same as diversion. It may be an aspect of, but it is, it's not what we're talking about when we look at diversion. Diversion needs to occur at every opportunity along the continuum of justice involvement, and JPD Commission um, can play an oversight role to ensure this occurs in the areas where JPD has jurisdiction. Um, and this is at police contact to maximize admonish and release procedures. When police determine a stronger response is required, encourage them to call CARP prior to unofficial arrest. When arrest is unavailable, divert to CARP for intake and community-based referrals. Discourage taking youth directly to JJC unless absolutely necessary. For youth taken directly to JJC, require that a community-based organization be notified within 24 hours. Utilize current meetings between CBOs to assess to assign youth at the point of intake. At the detention hearings, utilize DDAP for release planning and presentation at the hearing to maximize the number of youth diverted from further detention, are connected to community-based services, and returned home. Allow unfettered access to youth in the hall by service agencies that are funded to provide detention-based services. Oftentimes, Getting access to the kids at any point in time is a cumbersome and sometimes a difficult hurdle for organizations that are funded to serve these young people. 
our suggestions for the JPD Commission action would be to ask JPD to report out monthly on youth who were not taken directly to CARP and why, to require JPD to report out on percentage of youth who were connected to a CBO within 48 hours of being detained at the hall, and to, to request JPD to report on the percentage of youth on both informal and formal probations that are connected to a CBO. So in summary, we, are, we have been competitively vetted, we are funded to do the work, and we are the, the off-ramp. And not every organization is involved with JJPA. There are other organizations out there doing great work that are not a part of JJPA for whatever reason. Not, we're not exclusive. They can come anytime. But, but the connections, the folks that you were talking about exist, and that's what we feel like is underutilized and potentially undervalued, and that some of, those, some of the work that we're working on and have been working on since this whole reform has been to, to solidify some of that and to create um, more structure to push this out, but it is, has been a very slow process, and we stand ready to receive these young people the minute they have contact and to stay with them throughout their, actually throughout their uh, adolescence and into their young adult years. Thank you. Thank you. So, are there any questions, thoughts, comments? Can any comments on everything? Yeah. I wanted to wait so that I could have like an informed comment. But since I'm not in the um, program subcommittee, I just want to, I'm going to make comments that I'm turning over to the program subcommittee in the interest of time. Um, one thing that, that I saw was the, um, what I just heard idea of having a report back from juvenile probation about the people that don't make it to park because the park is closed, that's such a huge number. So finding out the number of people that are actually referred to services, be it park or be it um, sunset services, two services, I'm sorry. Excuse me, can I please urge parents. speakers to speak very loudly and speak toward the phone? You want to come over here? So, sorry, this is Cervantes. Um, so, my uh, comment was that we get the numbers of the people who aren't being referred because park is closed and finding out if those referrals are being made by JPD to park when appropriate. Um, I was left with Emily's story of the 13-year-old who committed a robbery and it seems like that person would be eligible for park because of their age, even though it's a 707B offense. So making sure that referral is made um, and that those 13-year-olds aren't staying in custody uh, when they shouldn't be. So um, that was my comment on, and that was also along with Selena's uh, presentation. Um, as to the, um, Chief Miller made a comment saying that our goal is not uh, reduce recidivism, and we've talked a little bit about measuring our goals, so we have to decide what our goal is for each diversion period. And I think like the, the story we heard about a child graduating from high school is, a, you know, that's a fantastic goal. So when are we seeing that, and how can we measure those goals? Um, my question also was, I saw on CARC that 
warrants are not eligible, and I just want to hear more about why, especially if it's an offense that would be eligible or a person that would be eligible, um, can that be changed? Is that within, I, I don't know the specific law on that, but could we change that? Um, and then um, I think it would be useful to compare this um, really high success rate that we're seeing with PARC as opposed to a, a more traditional JTD probation. So, and it, it probably should be offense, you know, specific, but um, that's something to pass on to the program committee and their work. Those are my questions. Thank you. Can I respond to the warrant question? Yeah. Uh, so, Commissioner, on the warrant question, it's not that the young person couldn't then be referred to CARC, but in that moment in police custody, that they will be getting booked in the hall because they have the warrant for their arrest out. And, and then they could be transported to CARC? They can't be, it wouldn't be transported to CARC because they'll be in custody until they go before a judge oh. on the warrant. But it doesn't preclude their PO from them connecting them back to CARC. But that gets back to what Selena said about the policy. So if our current policy is that young people actively working with probation then can't be hooked in here, that's the policy we need to look at because it will, it could prevent that, right? right? Thank you. Well, you just did exactly what I was going to ask everyone to do, which is to identify any issues um, that they want to refer to the program committee for further inquiry. and I certainly support all the ones you mentioned. And James, you're smiling. Do you have something you would like to refer to the program committee or are you Commissioner Moses? You guys want to hear my list? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let's hear the list so far. <laughs> She's got a year of work ahead of her. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, the first kind of bucket of things is the outcome issue, which is starts with your question, what outcomes should we expect from each diversion at each stage? But really what is measurable, so what's in the data, the data are what they are, right? So what can we measure and how do those two things align? And then the question is always what data do we need to start collecting if this is something that we really do need to measure, is that possible? So what, what is the gap? Um, and then I just want to make sure we're measuring the full suite of possible outcomes. So I'm interested in what happens to kids who don't successfully complete the diversion program and what their stats are. Um, where do they go when they don't successfully complete? What do their outcomes look like? I think we need to tell the, the whole story. So making sure we're doing that. Um, but in terms of models, kind of what interventions are effective for each stage. Also, what are the implications of successful completion at each stage? So if you successfully complete diversion at the front stage, what does that mean for your case? If you success, you know, this is get the bigger picture of the importance of diversion. Does it mean you don't have a record? Or does it mean that you get help with expungement down the line if it's something later on? You know, what are, what are the kind of bigger picture implications for a kid's life if they successfully we should spell that out for people anyway. Um, I'm interested in the out-of-county youth model. It just seems like a large percentage of kids, if there's anything we should be thinking about with them. Um, 
And then I think sort of what we're getting at in a lot of this conversation is can CARC really be the hub of the hub and spoke model? Um, is it just for the front end? And then if we really want to build out a robust referral system, like who does the coordination at all those other diversion points if that's not CARC's primary responsibility? And then what's the implication of not being open all the time if you're the hub? Um, because I think this is what you're getting at with the hours. It looks like from that chart, from the limited data you had, it was like 19% of kids were seeing plus, plus the weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, and then there's a whole bucket of questions about capacity. Just like, can cards taking on more? <laughs> like, what is what is the capacity? Like, if we were able to fix the referral hours and the eligibility criteria so more kids can go to CARC, like, is that even feasible? Like, what, you know, what is what is possible? Um, are police using CARC to the maximum capacity? Can the referral system be more fully utilized? Um, and, and how can we deal with the eligibility criteria? Is there any, uh, anything there? And then just this issue of, of codifying the coordination and collaboration that's currently happening between all the system partners and the CBOs. So uh, given political and leadership change, I think that was a good point, but also just speaks to this larger, like what is the system, the coordinated system we have to make sure all the resources are being utilized and kids are getting like, a, you know, assessed appropriately and given those things that make sense for them. So that's what I have. Oh my God, but that's, that's it. That's, that, that's, that's a year of work. So I, I, you didn't talk about my. I, I just want to make sure that the things I think our priors are embedded there. You know, be sure to look at these these exclusionary criteria yes. that I, you know, the out of county, the, the warrants, the, you know, which I think are important, and then the recommendations from DDAP about the data that needs to be you know, reported to the commission, which I think you mentioned, which is like, how many referrals are there? Yeah. Uh, any month who doesn't get referred to CARC and why? Yeah. Okay, do my fellow commissioners have other? Yes, thank you, James. Yeah, yeah for me it would be defining what we consider out of county. Mm -hmm. What is the out of county? Most, uh, our young people that come in to San Francisco maybe are originally San Francisco. They have been pushed out to a point where they're not in San Francisco anymore. They pushed out. So their mom moved to Antioch because she got Section 8, right? But the grandmama, the auntie, the niece, the cousin, and everybody else in the family lives in um, 100 points. So, uh, you know, so if you're here, so what, what is the Alice County youth? So he don't feel that he's out of county because his whole family is here. And the only reason he's out of county is because he's been pushed out of county. So, I mean, what, is, what do we consider out of county youth when we talk about that? So that definitely needs to be defined because, you know, and then what for me is, like I heard Denise said that uh, cart take them at 11, right? And this is a true, uh, real case that I just, you know, I'm working with this mom. And she had an 11 went to juvenile, juvenile turned him down, would not take him, and the, the mom was fed up with the little boy, 
his name been running all over the day. It went through like five. Uh, there's quite a few people using this one young man's name right now. And he's been all through the system. But because he's 11 and doing all the things he's doing, nobody would accept it. So at the end of the day, what is the age group that actually can refer? Because he got dropped, you know, like at the end of the day. And Denise, I know you probably have heard this story. Because at the end of the day, Juvenile said, you know, like, you know, he's too young. He can't take him up here and take him back home. So she went back home and he ended up killing another car. Taking off. So, you know, these are real life stories that we, you know, we find ourselves, you know, in. And, you know, and that's why, y'all, you know, I get, you know, I get upset because I see, you know, like the work that everybody does and with all that we have going on, how are we dropping the ball? You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, I know we can't fix it all, but, you know, I mean, it is so many things that get away from us that shouldn't because we do not communicate and we do not, you know, we, we I mean, we as CBOs, I'm, I'm guilty of it as a CBO myself. I just don't do enough outreach. I don't reach out to other organizations and say, hey, this is what I'm doing now. So at the end of the day, we as CBOs are guilty of this too. So I just want to bring... Uh, you know, just what happens in, in communities and, and in the city, really how, you know, why, you know, instead of having three up here, you, you know, you've got 10, 12, 15, and, you know, like I said, you know, those, you know for me, you know, summer is, the summer is like, this is it's opening up, and I see it already, and, it's, you know, it's going to be a lot, you know, because these kids are trying to get out there and find something to do, and, you know, <laughs> If we, we got to, we don't find them something to do, and they will be coming from out of the city, and they will going to be coming, and they are coming to San Francisco because they're doing some fun. You know, what their fun is, is you know, maybe not, you know, it's not always okay, you know what I mean? But, you know, that's just, that's just me. Well, um, yeah, but, you know, finding out, like, you know, for me, just focusing in. That makes sense. And then I can connect you. We are Yeah, I mean, if you guys have thoughts on what we should prioritize, I mean, given the length of the list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And recognizing that this is not one meeting, yeah. and it's not one month, and that this process obviously is going to go on, because that's how long it takes to solve problems. So, um I don't know if you want to say anything else, Joanna, about the program committee. Or yeah, I just want to make it mention of the cut program. I think we have it better as a comprehensive program. One stop. That mental health program is really incredible. It's like they have people who are really, really trained to deal with some issues. And I think this is the best document well, we have achieved our purpose here. People really now understand what CARC is and how impressive it is and the scope of what it can do. That was one of the major goals here. Um, so, uh, I know I was there. Uh, Yes, to go when I got to the 
we have a meeting here a couple of years ago, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think it was really you guys are getting better and better every day. So, pending any other objections or further comments, do we have any public testimony? Public, no, it's called public comment. Denise Coleman. There's something that has come up uh, over the years several times, and uh, we not too long ago had a conversation about it, and I would really like either for the committee uh, to take a look at it, the program committee to take a look at it, and that is young people that are on probation, and they commit or take up a new offense, and that new offense most times is lesser than the offense that they got put on probation. And um, for some reason, the reason being the probation officers primarily just don't want those kids to be seen by us because they're currently on their caseload and whatever services I'm guessing the kid needs, they may assume they're providing or making referrals for them to get the services that they need. But I would really like for us to take a look at that. And I said that because the other day there was a young lady who got into a really big fight with her mother, right, about the family, she was in crisis. Um, and they started to release the girl uh, from from the from where they were at, and they cited the girl to go up to probation. I think what three or four days later, and and nothing happened in that moment, you know. And so we have to be able to address a lot of these situations in the moment because if not, we have the the hypocrisy of the <laughs> and if I can, can I just say something? Yeah, I mean, and that's like exact, like thank you, Denise, because that's exactly the point of the data that Selena presented, right, is understanding why kids aren't coming. And that was not a policy when CARC was created, but it's been a policy yeah. since 2015. And so it, it is why data matters, right, to help us understand the numbers of young people that aren't making it here because of policies that works their way in along the way, and that can be unraveled as well as raveled, right? So I think for, I think speaking for probation, that was exactly the point of doing that deep dive. Thank you. For and if we could here. accomplish that, I would feel like we, we, <laughs> we did a big job. It's probably just like, and I had that, and you know, a case like that, and I have been, you know, been through some cases where sometimes it's not the case, sometimes it's the probation Sometimes it's probation officers, it's the initiative to say, hey, you just picked up who? Let me call somebody right now and yeah. get them down there. So sometimes I have been in a space many, many times. And, you know, I don't, you know, it's, we have some good, just like we have some good everybody. Right. I don't ever claim to be perfect. I know I have my faults. I don't, you know, I know who I am. You know, but at the end of the day, some of these kids have probation officers, and I have one not too long ago that did not pay attention or care whether that kid was in there doing community hours with me or not, but, you know, it was, they were going back and forth on, you know, where you, you can't go down there right. and you can't, you know, like, well, what I'm going to do is, like, you know, there's only safe place I got to go, you know, but it, it, them cases happen, and it's not, it's not that it's the data, it's the people, and we just, you know, we have to be real on how we function as organizations and everything else because there's a whole lot of, you know, 
folks that just don't want to work no more. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? And, and I can tell you that because I'm trying to hire a bunch of people. But people don't realize working with young people is a job. So if you're not willing to do that job, you shouldn't be sitting in that space. So if you're not willing to get up in there and say, hey, you know what, then you, just you're in the wrong line of work. So, uh, this was a time for public comment. Does anybody else have public comment? Um, I, I, it's been a very rich conversation and a lot of very important information. And um, Joanna has a big task ahead of her in terms of prioritizing. And whoever wants to help her, we have the committee is um, uh, Linda and James are on the committee who will help prioritize. So I'm going to move us to the next item on the agenda, which is why I'm standing up, because the next, I don't know how many people realize that Denise's last day is like Friday. Oh, tomorrow, excuse me, tomorrow. She managed not to tell anybody that. And I, I have to say, Denise has been part of the system for 22 years. It's one thing just to dream about starting a program and starting. It's a whole other thing to spend 22 years making it happen. And that is just what a contribution to our city. What a, what a contribution not just to the city, but as I mentioned earlier, she is nationally recognized. This program is nationally recognized. And she has been in the helm almost since the beginning. Um, and I, uh, I think we owe her a huge debt of gratitude. Uh, the commission has a certificate for you, but we haven't gotten everybody to sign it yet. But it will come, and it will be nicely framed, and you can put it on your wall. Um, and so we're, we're pleased to be giving that. So you can hear how everybody in this room claps. Yeah, yeah, Denise, yeah. she's not only you know made this enormous contribution to the city, but one of the nicest things that happened to me since I've gotten back into this world is to get to know Denise better. And I have to tell you, everybody loves Denise. You, you, barely, you, you can't meet someone who is so universally respected and loved, who is so kind, and who I, every time I leave talking to her, I feel better. And she must do that with her staff, with kids, with people she's been working with in San Francisco for 22 years. So um, Denise is... Well, mensch isn't the right word, is it? No, but it, 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 it could be. So not only is she loved and respected and trusted and is kind, but she does it by still standing up for everything she believes. And it is a gift and an art. And thank you very much. So I, the, person in this, the person in this room who knows Denise the best, is our chief, and so we want to give Chief Miller a chance to honor. Him. 
Okay. I'm going to read this. You know I never read things, um, but I got super verklempt just writing it, so I'm going to stick to the words for you. Um, so I first met Denise right around 2000 uh, when she and her longtime love and later her husband, Alvester Ellis, moved here from North Carolina, where they had been running Solancy Street, uh, to come work at Park uh, when it was still very much an idea. Um, I've had the privilege of working with and watching Denise as she became the director at Park and then uh, the director of Youth Justice at Huckleberry, so aptly named as a title. I have had the privilege of watching, I'm going to say you instead of her, I'm not going to talk about you like you're not here. I've had the privilege of watching you guide Park along its path from this weird new idea to a central part of San Francisco's youth justice system, something most people in this system like have never known not to exist now certainly most police on the street. Um, you have garnered national attention, and even on your way out, you're just continually working to expand its purpose and its reach. I have had the privilege of watching you earn your master's in social work while you never stopped working. I have had the privilege of watching you be recognized and publicly commended for your work multiple times and watching you hate it every single time it happens, <laughs> every time. Um, speaking as the Chief for Juvenile Probation, I want to thank you for being an unrelenting and positive partner over the years. You have big fans at Juvenile Probation. And more recently, I also want to thank you for never saying no when we asked you to be on interview panels to help us make some important decisions for the department. And on a personal note, I want to say um, that even during the last 20 plus years, when there's been times that we haven't worked together every day, we have been in orbit with each other. And whenever I've intersected with you, it has brought me joy and comfort, uh, and it's really kept me aligned with my purpose. Denise, I will miss seeing your face and hearing your laugh in person and on screen. I am always happier to seeing you in those spaces, always. Uh, but I know we're still gonna intersect, and I'm gonna wish you the very best in your next chapter, uh, and I'm going to also be unrelenting in suggesting that you consider having an RSA for older young people <laughs> <laughs> so that you can bring all of that love and purpose uh, to the San Francisco Juvenile Justice Youth going forward. Um, but thank you for everything. So now I am going to call for public comment. Action item, so I think the body should vote. Oh, yeah. But first, we have to take public comment. Right. <laughs> yeah. So just wanted to have the name on that. Is there any public comment? Really, nobody has. I'm not sure if this is the public comment. Yeah. Yeah. So there is going to be a celebration of Denise tomorrow. And um, a lot of people will be going and have an opportunity to speak in praise of the name. So, do can I take a motion to commend the name kind of formally by the right by the commission? John, second. Yes. Commissioner Cervantes. Yes. Commissioner Rico. Yes. Commissioner Moses. 
There's a, there actually was a public comment submit, submitted by email. Um, is this an appropriate moment to read it out? Yeah, please. Yes, there was, yeah. Okay. okay. I can also share it. Uh, just a moment. And I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, it's Meredith DeSotos? I don't know. Uh, but this public comment is from Meredith, staff attorney at the Youth Law Center. Thank you, commissioners and chief, for the opportunity to comment. JPD's data deep dive on CARC is extremely powerful and a great resource for continuing to improve San Francisco's youth diversion programming. The data report shows the tremendous success of CARC in helping youth achieve positive outcomes. And it also highlights several areas where policy changes could expand our utilization of diversion. Some key questions for the Commission to consider include, can CARC eligibility be expanded so that more cases are screened into CARC? For example, could CARC serve out-of-county youth? Can CARC hours be expanded or can programming be made flexible so that it can be utilized after hours? Can CARC intake be routed first through CARC rather than through JPD. It's clear that the law requires JPD to refer a significant portion of cases to the DA's office. If San Francisco implemented diversion intake prior to JPD referral, more youth would be eligible for diversion under the law. One more point of emphasis, we strongly recommend that San Francisco eliminate its Juvenile Traffic Court program. Utilizing traffic court for these low-level citations is contradicted by research, which clearly indicates that formal court processing leads to worse outcomes. Instead, these cases should be rerouted to CARC's supportive program. We look forward to the Commission's continuing work on this issue, and at the Youth Law Center, we would welcome the opportunity to collaborate with the Commission to expand diversion programming for San Francisco's youth. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I, that is someone who can be referred to the program committee. And I think we can get you a written copy of that testimony. So look at it. So I will move on now to item seven, which is the election of the vice president. So do we have any nominations for vice yeah. James has a nomination. 
I'm turning to James. That's okay. So I am your nominee, Commissioner Commissioner Sabati. He's nominating Commissioner Cervantes. Oh. So, uh, Commissioner Cervantes has been nominated. Um, do you have a second for yeah. that? Oh, yeah, just second. Do you second the nomination? Yeah, I'm second. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so, we have somebody who's been nominated and seconded, and we can have discussion. Does anybody want to discuss this? And then we can have public comment. Uh, here, already. <laughs> so, so yes. Yeah. So I think this is. Uh, I support the nomination of uh, Commissioner Cervantes. Um, and when I look at the commission, I can see that. Make sure everybody has a role on the commission that is important and is, is something they want to be part of. Um, so, uh, if any other, are there other comments? And is there public comment? You got me trained, Jana. Um, hearing no public comments, um, we'll take a vote. President Brockian. Yes. Mr. Lenko. Yes, Mr. Moses. Yes, yes. Mr. Singola. Yes, but I need to vote as Commissioner Sabante. Yeah, you took it. Did you ask for Hesse both? Yes. Yes. Did you ask Commissioner Sabante? No, I don't know. Oh, you don't vote. Is it a yes? What am I missing? I mean, yes. Yeah, nobody. We can ask. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do this job and um, helping us track what we're doing in, a, in the meeting to make sure that we put things on future agendas that are that have come up at the meeting. So as I said, I am going to defer the chief's report to the next meeting. I'm going to have, ask that the uh, data, sorry, skipping that, I'll be posted on the website, and I am going to defer on my report. Uh, and we, I want to just talk briefly about future agenda items, because we did agree at the end of every meeting we would do that. After discussions with the chief and looking at our goals uh, and listening to the testimony at the last uh, meeting, it seems that talking about the juvenile hall and the idea of turning the juvenile hall into a more home-like environment and determining where if or if a new juvenile hall should exist should be on the agenda. And James has raised this a couple of times, like what is the status of the decisions that are being made um, and uh, how can we move forward with at least some of the recommendations about having a more humane environment in the juvenile hall would be the discussion. So um, that is what we are proposing for uh, July. We don't meet in August, 
And um, one thing we could discuss in September is to move on to our goal around, which has come up many times here, referrals to community-based organizations. The department has been attempting to develop a methodology for uh, measuring that. We can hear about the status of that. And uh, it, it is very well linked to an idea that has come up through the report on the closed juvenile hall about wellness advocates and uh, care teams. The two, two issues are totally related. So that is what we propose um, for future agenda items. And so now would be a time, or you can email me, are there people you would like to see testi testimony from as part of either of those topics? Yeah, I'm wondering if you have ideas about the juvenile hall um, session. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it talks a bit about like what constraints what were under legally. But I would like that to be like crystal clear to, to be able to understand where the, the room is to innovate. Um, but I wonder if you have other ideas about who should, who should come present to us. Well, we certainly want to hear from the department. Yeah. And then there is this idea that certain aspects of the juvenile hall be co-run co with probation and community organizations. So. I feel like we have to get some some other people to talk about that. Sure. Yeah, it's just a, on the question about kind of the legal constraints, I mean, I'm happy to present on that. We're also happy to see if somebody from the Board of State and Community Corrections is willing to give an overview. I find it helpful to hear from them. They are the regulatory body that oversees what would be approved here. Um, so we could do that. Uh, we've been asked to present, to come back to the Board of Supervisors with proposals around shared leadership. I don't know the timeline of that, um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that. But um, as a starting point, for sure, we could see if we could have somebody come and share some of that regulatory, at least be available to the Commission for questions um, to understand, you know, what are the guardrails within which we can be imaginative yeah. in the work. I, I, you want that, I just don't want to drown it. And you know, I and have it, don't want to drown in it. Have it, yeah. you know, hold hold back our. And yeah. I do recall hearing you present that very, very well. So okay. I don't know how much we need to get somebody from the state okay. in here. Either way, because the, the department has developed a whole presentation about this, which I think would be okay. useful to hear. The other piece of it that I just would note is that it's both our juvenile hall and it's also the. Realigned use, and yes. so we could just do a quick 101 on how those two things fit together in San Francisco and in the building right yeah. now, yeah. so that everybody understands yeah. the population of young people that we are dealing with and the different uh, issues and requirements. So just think about sure. this recommendation that was made in the closed juvenile hall report about having some joint, some uh, shared leadership of aspects of running the juvenile hall. Of all the um, recommendations that were made in that report, I think this is one of the ones that was most popular, that people had the, the strongest feelings about. So I think that's an important aspect of the conversation. And I'll try to think of who might be most interested in talking about that. I 
think the Young Women's Freedom Center was interested in that, and I don't, I, I could use some help sort of thinking who else was really pushing for that. Okay. So, can, can, can we add that? And, you know, I, I would want to hear what, what the State Department did about what the restraint is when we build in a new facility. What is the urgency of all this? I know you. I know you're on your way to the board. I know you're on your way to the board. But what is the urgency? And what is the plan for the staff that's there? What is that conversion looking like? And the process of everything else? Because you know we what we three years in, two two years in since the last one since they announced that it was going to be closed down. But at the end of the day. Whatever their roles are now, what are we doing as a body to start, you know, because my vision is always how do I train them to be more than just uh, yeah. a PO, uh, you know, uh, you know, and then how do I get them, you know, to, to be trained as needed, to be a counselor instead of a probation officer. You know, what do all that look like? What's that urgency do? But I know you're not going to know that. issues on the list to discuss in July, and I don't know if maybe someone from the Board of Supervisors would mind coming to tell us what they might have in mind. Yeah, you sure. <laughs> why not? I'm going to get the president. Why not? I don't want to hear it from Tracy again. Yeah, I want to hear it from no, Supervisor Walt. You sure ain't going to get the president. Right. So, uh, so, um, are there, uh, I would like to move on to adjournment then, if there is, oh, I have to say what time it is. It is 8.22, and, and I will, I don't have to, we don't have to have a motion or anything, right? The meeting is adjourned. I feel like I'm going to